Welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you're coming back to the show, thank you so much. Really appreciate your support. Hey, if this is your first time, thank you. Welcome to Counterpunch. You can go over and get a subscription to Counterpunch Plus. That helps keep us going. That is where you find all of our exclusive content. We have it from a wide variety of perspectives on all of the key issues that you're interested in. We've been around almost 30 years now, so please do consider becoming a supporter and helping us keep this project going. Um, speaking of fixtures on the left who have been around for decades and are worth listening to, uh, Doug Henwood is with me again. Doug is back on the show. He is one of the, I don't know, what are you, Doug? You're one of the foremost economic minds in America today, I believe. He's a well, journalist. thank you, thank you. <laughs> He's a journalist. He's a I'm not sure I like being a fixture, though. That sounds like well, a, that, well, an antique piece of furnishing or something. Well, listen, you're a risible foot soldier for the ownership class, Doug. Yes, 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 yes. You're also described as a Stalinist schoolyard bully by some of your friends. And uh, you're an effet sound money Marxist, I hear. But you're also... Those are all actual quotes, too. I'm not I, picking those up. <laughs> you're also editor, a contributing editor at The Nation and host of Behind the News, an important podcast that everybody should be subscribed to. Doug Henwood, welcome back to Counterpunch. Oh, thanks for having me. Counterpunch and I go way back. I remember oh, yeah. uh, when, the days of Ken Silverstein. Oh, my goodness. Ken actually is long overdue for an appearance on this show, but he's long since gone into his bunker and into hiding. So I don't know where we'll f- ferret him out soon. Um, Doug, I want to ask you a number of economic questions today in our conversation. I guess let's just start with the obvious one, the one that is affecting everybody. That is the top issue of the day. It is inflation. So let's talk about a little bit about inflation. There's a lot of different directions we can go, but Doug, let's hear your analysis on what is really driving inflation today. Well, I have a 6,000 word uh, piece that I wrote, uh, which is, uh, uh, it's Fort Jacobin. We'll see what happens with it. I don't know. I haven't heard back from the editor. But um, uh, it's an extremely complex problem. And I think I want to start by saying people on the left uh, sometimes minimize uh, what a problem it is uh, because we either remember or know of the intense austerity of the Paul Volcker years, late 70s, early 80s, uh, enormous uh, crackdown on labor. Um, that uh, cuts in real wages, cuts in government spending, all those things, that austerity program that brought inflation down from its highs in the 70s into the early 80s um, had a, had a very um, harsh effect on, on the American working class. But on the other hand, inflation really comes along with real wage losses. Um, so we're seeing pretty decent wage increases if you just look at them on the face of them right now, uh, five, 6% a year on average. Um, and with the, the low end actually um, outdoing the high end, weirdly enough. Um, but even uh, with uh, people on the low end getting 6% or so uh, nominal wage increases, that's eaten up by eight eight and a half percent inflation. So, uh, and if you look back uh, on periods of American history, uh, the the worst for the real wage loss were those high inflation years of the late 70s into the early 80s. Um, so this is one of the perpetual problems of capitalism. Managing inflation um, requires a rise in unemployment, and a rise in unemployment is very damaging to a lot of people. So this is one of the reasons I'm a socialist. I mean, this perpetual battle between inflation and unemployment is not easily resolved. Uh, and it's not it, you don't resolve it by denying the negative effects of inflation. But on the other hand, um, 
you know, the, the cost of, of high unemployment is, is really damaging to people's lives. So you know, this is, it's, it's a very, very difficult problem. And I just don't have any easy solution for us here. I will say there's a kind of inflation that people don't talk about as often, which is also very important and which has been fueled by the policies of the last years uh, or the last 10 years or so, actually, um, is asset inflation. Uh, the incredible inflation in, uh, well, over the last couple of years, housing, but for over the longer term uh, in uh, stocks um, and all the crazy things like crypto and NFTs and all this uh, exotic financial nonsense, which has uh, um, been largely fueled by the Fed uh, pumping about $8 trillion of cash into a financial system, which created uh, didn't do too much to stimulate the real economy. But it did uh, do a lot to stimulate that kind of asset inflation, which is either a waste of human resources, uh, if we're talking about uh, just pure financial speculation, with uh, the possibility of, of creating a financial crisis, or um, you know, inflation in one of the the cost the, the, the inflation in the cost of one of life's essentials, housing. Uh, and I just was reading a quote from Fed Chair Jay Powell from a couple of years ago when he was celebrating. The rise in house prices as proof that the the Fed's uh, policies were working and the economy is being stimulated. I don't know. I don't think the rise in house prices is really a great thing for most people, uh, unless you own a house already. But if you're trying to find a, a buy a new house or if you're trying to rent um, an apartment, you know, housing inflation is very bad for you. Indeed. I want to probe a little bit further what you were just talking about in terms of historical context. You mentioned the Volcker years, the 1970s. Can you give us, uh, maybe from a 30,000-foot perspective, a comparison historically of what we're going through right now to the dot-com bubble bursting in 2000 and the subprime crisis in 2008? Because those are the two you know, real financial crises that people listening to us today have probably gone through themselves, have some direct experience with. Um, and what happened then versus now and what didn't happen then versus now vis-a-vis -vis inflation? Well, let me just say a word about the Volcker years. Um, inflation now is not this kind of deep-seated problem of in the 70s was real serious unresolved class conflict. And uh, the Volkiers represented the triumph of the, uh, the employing class. No question about that to me. Uh, and I, I just don't see that kind, you know, the, the uh, strike rate is way down, unionization rates are way down. There's just that, not that kind of um, class struggle from below happening. Um, we, we have, uh, you know, class struggle from above, but not, uh, not class struggle from below. So I don't think that we're going to see anything like that kind of extended wrenching austerity that uh, Volcker represented. Um, even if you know the Fed does nudge up interest rates, um, uh, you know, we've heard a lumber, number of people, um, mostly Wall Street types, saying that um, an interest rate of around three percent, a short-term interest rate of about three percent, could be extremely damaging to the U.S. economy. Now, we've had three percent interest rates for much of modern economic history. So, if the U.S. economy can't stand a three percent interest rate, it's got some very serious structural problems we need to have a conversation about. Um, as for those earlier two financial crises you mentioned, the dot-com bust and um, the subprime crisis, there are similarities and there are differences. Um, the financial crises that came out of those events, particularly the subprime one, originated within the financial system. Um, that there were just things got way, way, way extended, and then um, uh, they burst, and uh, we um, there, there was some a lot of real-world fallout to that. This, of course, is all you know, 
COVID and post-COVID. It's, it's to use an economic language or jargon, it's exogenous. It's not something that happens from within. But there is an awful lot of, um, there are an awful lot of danger points within the, the financial system now um, that have come with, um, as byproducts of 10 years of perpetual ease and indulgence um, by the Federal Reserve ever since the, the 2008 2009 crisis, the Fed has kept interest rates very low and has just been pumping money into the system and uh, creating all these bubbles that we talked about earlier. Um, And we just, and then also a lot of non-financial corporations have been borrowing very heavily uh, to buy their own stock, to buy up each other, Uh, not necessarily to make much in the way of productive investment, but uh, to, to engage in financial machinations, basically, which is what mergers and acquisitions are, and also what um, stock buybacks are. So uh, there's an awful lot of vulnerability in the system. Uh, we don't know how many people are very highly leveraged in crypto. Um, if And the crypto market, you know, Bitcoin is off by about half from its peak uh, in November. Uh, we don't know how highly leveraged people are in stocks. You know, we saw the meme stock thing um, in February of 21. That fell apart, and that kind of represented a, a peak in, in, in that speculative corner of the stock market. But still, um, you know, the, the stock market averages are still quite elevated and have a long way to fall if they're going to fall. Uh, and we don't know what kind of fallout that's going to have or how exposed a lot of people are. You know, these are the kinds of things. There's a famous quote from Warren Buffett. You don't know who's swimming in, who's swimming without trunks until the tide goes out. Uh, we may uh, we may find a lot of people are, are doing some unauthorized uh, skinny dipping um, as uh, uh, as interest rates rise and financial conditions tighten. Um, so there, there is substantial risk that um, the, the, um, there, are, there are a lot of bombs that are going to blow up within the financial system. We just don't know yet. And one of the oddities about this bubble we've seen over the last few years um, is that it's spread across so many different markets. You know, you mentioned the dot-com bubble. That was largely a, a stock market thing. Uh, the subprime uh, crisis was mostly about housing. You know, certainly uh, securities that were related to it, but the central the, the star of that show is housing. Um, this time, you know, there's just so many crazy assets um, that uh, have proliferated uh, and we don't really know what uh, what the effect of having all these bubbles burst simultaneously is going to be. They're, they're leaking air already. They haven't burst, but they're certainly leaking gas and uh, um, we're, it, it's going to be quite an experiment. Now, the, the Fed has made sounds like it's not going to be as indulgent as it was in previous crises, that it's going to try to uh, squeeze some of this financial excess out. Um, that could have some serious real-world real world effects. We just don't know. We'll find out. Now, speaking of um, answers to the question of inflation, one of the things that you see floating around if you uh, if you probe around on left social media in our little ecosystem, there is this issue of corporate profits and the question of corporate profits being at, I don't know if we'd say record highs, but certainly corporate profits being very high and simultaneously prices jumping and you know skyrocketing while the you know ownership class talks about things like wage pressure driving prices up. So is this just an outright lie by the rich that it is wage pressure while they cash in you know record profits? Or is that too simplistic? How do we read this sort of meme on the left about corporate profits vis-a-vis inflation? Yeah. And the thing about record profits is really silly because 
about 40% of the quarters um, since the end of World War II, uh, corporations have made record profits. Making record profits is a very routine occurrence. Uh, and if you look at profit rates, you know, relative to underlying capital or as a share of the economy, they're high, but not like extremely high. So um, there's this idea that there's something really um, off the charts about profits right now um, is uh, it's wrong. I will say one thing, though, the, the corporate profits tax is at the lowest level. Um, the 2017 uh, tax cuts uh, that Trump brought in uh, took corporate profits taxes down to their lowest level since the 1930s. So um, that's one area I think we could talk about uh, any kind of serious reforms uh, would involve raising that corporate profits tax uh, back to even, even the levels of the 1990s, which you know, were about uh, twice as high as they are now. Um, uh, and they are certainly not as high as they were in the 50s and 60s. So that, that's one area that uh, that, that profits critique um, is accurate. But, you know, you hear this, it's um, corporations are just greedily gouging and driving up uh, prices and um, expanding their profits. Uh, I don't understand. Nothing really has changed in the industrial sectors in the last several years uh, that would allow them to do this. Why didn't they do the same thing in 2018, 2019? Um, if they have all this uh, market power to raise prices. Um, I think it's a, it's a poor explanation. Like people um, uh, say they're taking advantage of inflation, um, but what is inflation if not rising prices? It's like this weird reification of something that's stalking the landscape all on its own. Um, um, so I don't know. It, 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 I think the, the fundamental problem is that uh, we had uh, uh, COVID shut down the supply chains, uh, made it very hard to uh, provide uh, goods. Uh, at the same time, uh, COVID uh, led to people uh, shifting, spending away from serv- service uh, services into goods because they weren't going to restaurants, they weren't going to movies, they weren't traveling. Uh, so they were buying appliances and cars. At the very moment, uh, the production of appliances and cars is proving very difficult because of COVID. Uh but also there's this, you know, this massive, massive fiscal and monetary stimulus that injected tons of purchasing power to the economy at the very moment when the supply side was really constrained. Um, it's the, the dynamics of that, I think, are, are just hard to argue with, that uh, it's, it's a mix of uh, very large demand pressures with uh, very constricted supplies, and that uh, produces price increases. Um, and uh, it started out uh, concentrated in a few areas, used cars, weirdly enough, because uh, it was hard to buy a new car. Um, but now it's spread beyond that. It's become more generalized. And it, it is a problem. And, um, you know, it does, uh, it does nobody any good in the long term to, uh, to deny that it's a problem. The last thing I think that uh, uh, actually there, there's research showing that inflation hurts low income people more than it hurts high income people. Uh, and uh, which is another reason why we should uh, take inflation more seriously than a lot of people on the left are willing to do. Um, but yeah, but that profits explanation is just not not a really serious one. So much I could say and agree with with what you just said. But speaking of, you mentioned exogenous events. Let's just talk about the other very large exogenous event right now, the Russian war in Ukraine. And what impact do you see that is having globally? I mean, is it simply an exas- you know, a sort of, multiplier of the already existing supply chain issues resulted from COVID? Is this somehow amplifying some of these problems? Is it changing this dynamic? How do you read the uh, economic impact globally of the Ukraine war? Obviously, we talk about uh, oil and gas prices, we talk about wheat prices, but it has wide ranging ramifications, doesn't it? 
Yeah, I mean, it, the, the, the impact is mostly on energy and food, uh, which is already showing lots, lots of signs of inflation. Um, you know, every time I go to the grocery store, I can't imagine, I just, I'm, you know, I suffer a, ch- a sticker shock when I, when I check out, and it just gets worse. Uh, we're seeing, you know, U.S. food prices increase about something in the neighborhood of 10, 10% a year at the current rate. Um, the FAO's index of food prices, which are really... Um, much more um, of much more relevance to poorer economies um, are up like 20 30 percent over the year so yeah the, the 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 shutdown of Ukrainian grain exports and uh, the sanctions against Russian oil and gas exports are both fueling increases in um, uh, energy and food prices which were already pretty hot uh, so it's an intensifier I mean, it's not the cause, but it's uh, the prime cause, the originating cause, but it is, it is intensifying these already existing problems, making things a lot worse. So I think negotiations, peace negotiations would be a great anti-inflation policy. And just to finish up on, on this issue, um, what about the uh, promised hike or pr- uh, continued promise of hikes in the interest rate from the Federal Reserve? What impact will that have? Um, what impact does that have on, you know, middle class uh, and younger people who are trying to enter into the middle class, those who maybe already have homes versus those who are trying to get homes? What impact does this have on our, you know, I don't know, 30 to 49 age bracket? Well, I think a lot of people in the 30 to 49 age bracket were finding it very difficult to get housing. Uh, uh, rents were, were through the roof. I mean, if you look at Zillow, Zillow has a rent increase, uh, in, uh, or Zillow has a rent index, rather. Uh, and uh, that's been just like practically vertical over the last year. Uh, rents like that enter this uh, official consumer price index only slowly. Um, so that we're going to see that filter into the CPI uh, over the coming months. But, um, you know, if you're just, if you're trying to look for a, um, a, a rental right now, uh, you're pretty screwed. And I, you know, I hear from all these people who are trying to buy houses, uh, similar stories. Um, it's very nice if you uh, live in a house whose price, price is appreciating, but on the other hand, you can't really sell it and cash in because uh, you're going to have to find somewhere else to live and the price of that would be very high. Um, so, yeah, I think the, the effect on the housing market is, is, is uh, the effect of, of rising housing prices on, on people has been very, very damaging uh, to most of us. Um, the, uh, but, you know, the, the Fed's first hike and the talk of more uh, and also the talk of their unwinding all the um, this, uh, treasury bond purchases of the last several years, um, that has already had an effect. I think we're seeing the housing market has probably peaked. Uh, the stock market clearly peaked. Um, you know, crypto and other um, related assets peaked uh, late last year. Um, so we're already seeing the, the, the effects of these interest rates, um, uh, interest rate increases uh, um, uh, spreading throughout the financial system and into the real economy. And that's only going to continue. Uh, and the Fed, it seems to be very determined uh, to jack up interest rates by another half point uh, when it meets later this month. So um, I think the, the markets now are giving that a 97% likelihood of it happening. So, uh, yeah, we're going to see more of it. Uh, and whether um, it's going to create a, a broad generalized recession, that's hard to say at this point. Um, but, uh, yeah, we're already seeing the impact on, on financial markets and housing for sure.
Before we take a break, I want to just ask you about one other issue. You've already ta- you already at least mentioned it. Talk to me like I don't understand anything about cryptocurrency because I know very little about the actual details and mechanics of how this all works and why every every uh, you know tech bro is up in arms about this. Um, talk to me about the collapse of crypto. What does this mean? Does it mean anything for the real economy? What does it mean for these, you know, young investor class that really leveraged itself into that? Because sometimes you feel like, oh, there must be millions of young people out there who are totally going to, you know, get their lunches eaten. And at the same time, you read an article like, well, it's five people that dominate the crypto market or like, you know, 12, <laughs> you know, massive investors that dominate it. So what is the real effect of the collapse of crypto, not just Bitcoin, but all all of these, you know, Terra and Luna and Ethereum and all of these different coins. Um, what is the real economic impact, if any? Uh, well, actually, there's an interesting paper that just came out uh, from Baylor, a team at uh, data scientists at Baylor. Uh, and they looked at the early crypto uh, years and found out it was from the first, it's been intensely concentrated. And like just 64 players really dominated the whole thing from the outset. So the, and, uh, and there's also no anonymity to it. Like all these people who thought they were being anonymous. Uh, uh, one of the uh, commenters on the paper said that uh, uh, that Bitcoin has been a gift to um, spies everywhere. Like they uh, the, that uh, they they knew just how porous it was, but they didn't tell because they were able to follow all these transactions that people thought were secret. So uh, the, the major selling point of this stuff. Um, the decentralized and anonymous, uh, allegedly decentralized anonymous nature of it um, turned out not to be true. Um, but uh, yeah, the, the, these these markets are dominated by a few large players. But on the other hand, there are a lot of little people who have, you know, what for them is a lot of money wrapped up in these things. So in the, those twin coins, Terra and Luna, which is some wit named, um, collapsed a few weeks ago uh the the chat rooms on reddit were full of like suicide talk uh and people were posting suicide hotline numbers people are going to end it all uh these people who had of course you know reddit who knows how much this is actually true but i think it probably some of it at least some of it is um uh, people were saying they had you know say uh, they'd spend all their wife's their life savings and their wife's savings on 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 this stuff and now they're screwed uh uh, and I'm sure there's quite a bit of that. And these were relatively minor players compared to Bitcoin and Ethereum. Uh, Bitcoin off by about half. I think Ethereum probably off about a little more from its peak. Um, I think there are a lot of people in this market who have never sold. I mean, they've had this almost religious belief that this stuff is going to the moon. You know, Bitcoin wasn't going to peak at 30 or 35,000 or 40, whatever it was. Um, but um, it was going to go to 100 or 200 or a million. You know, it's just going straight to the moon. And uh, I think there are an awful lot of people who are looking at these uh, declines and saying, uh, it'll come back, it'll come back, and maybe it will come back. Um, but there could be quite a few um, people ruined by this. Um, and But also, we just don't know how... Uh, how tied it is to the rest of the financial system, how many hedge funds um, uh, have heavy holdings in crypto, uh, what's going to happen to their banks, the banks that lend money to the hedge funds. Uh, we don't know how leveraged people are in crypto. Um, it, it's, this is only going to emerge in the next, over the next few months. Uh, but I think there's a reason why uh, um, uh, Jamie Dimon, the, the chair of uh, 
J.P. Morgan Chase said the other day that the financial system is facing a hurricane. I think this is probably what he has in mind. And uh, we don't we just don't know how severe it's going to be because we don't know, uh, partly because of the very nature of uh, crypto investments. Um, we just don't know how exposed people are. There's just so little disclosure. Uh, you know, at least you know the, this, the mainstream financial system has certain de- uh, rules of disclosure. Uh, so we have some sense of uh, who's involved and how much leverage there is. But um, this world, we just don't know. And we're, I, I guess we're going to find out. Again, a- answer for me like I'm an idiot here. How will we find out? I mean, what would well, be the indicators of that? Oh, well, people people going broke, hedge funds blowing up, banks uh, having uh, problems because uh, their clients went broke and can't pay back loans. Um, and then, you know, just human distress. People... Um, People declaring bankruptcy, people uh, killing themselves um, because they're broke. Um, yeah, there, there's a great potential for financial and human distress here, but we don't know how much because we just don't know uh, the extent of, of, of how deeply people are into this stuff. I mean, country like El Salvador switched its whole currency over to the Bitcoin currency. So, I mean, you know, there are some well, players never had there. They, they didn't have a currency of their own. They were using the U.S. dollar. Um, they haven't had their own currency in like a couple of decades. Uh but most uh, El Salvadorians were uh, sensible enough not to get involved in it. Very few of them trusted it. And most of the people who did get involved in it were just who you'd expect, um, younger, uh, um, educated men uh, who thought they, you know, masters of the universe. But uh, most other folks um, kept their distance from it because they thought it was a scam. And uh, that, that, that instinct was completely correct. Let's take a quick break. On the other side of the break, I'll continue with Doug Henwood. Want to find out what he thinks about uh, the the dollar as the global reserve currency? A lot of talk about that issue these days. That and of course, what would we we would be remiss if we didn't talk about the prospects for twenty twenty two and twenty twenty four with Doug while we have him on the line. So we will continue our conversation with Doug Henwood. You're listening to Counterpunch Radio. We'll be right back.
And we are back chatting with Doug Henwood here again. Go and subscribe to Behind the News wherever you get your podcast. That is a resource that you will be glad you put into your rotation. And of course, uh, Doug's writings at The Nation, Jacobin, everywhere else that he publishes. So, um, Doug, let's talk a little bit about de-dollarization. This is a popular subject now for in some quarters, especially on the left, especially since Russia uh, launched the war in Ukraine and the sanctions have come into place in this sort of well, at least according to some, a, a division in the world between those that are continuing to, uh, you know, base their world around the dollar and those that are moving away from it. I want to just at a general level, get your sense about this issue. I'm personally skeptical, but I, I, I mean, I want to hear what you have to say about this idea of the world moving away from the dollar and what it actually means. What does it actually look like? And is it even happening? You know, the, the U.S. the world has been moving away from the dollar very slowly, uh, and uh, the sanctions probably have scared some countries, um, some finance people, uh, because of of the U.S. power over the dollar. Uh, the dollar's centrality in the world financial system makes it uh, easy for the U.S. to impose sanctions uh, because you know any U.S. banks are basically forbidden from doing business with Russia now. Um, so Russia's frozen out of the financial system. And, you know, if you're a, um, a, a foreign country, you're going to say, hmm, I'm not sure I want this done to me in the future. So um, I'm going to try to pull back from the dollar. The problem is that there are not a whole lot of alternatives to the dollar. Uh, the reason the dollar is the world's currency is that, first of all, because the U.S. is still, I mean, we, we certainly declined in our economic preeminence in the world, but it's still the world's largest economy. Uh, it uh, um, is you know, the the, um, the guarantor of capitalism, fundamental guarantor of capitalism around the world and has been for decades. Uh, it, we have this enormous treasury market where people can move trillions of dollars in and out of it without anybody really noticing. Uh, and there's just nothing like that in the rest of the world. There's no country uh, that can, you know, China is big. It's getting bigger all the time. It probably will surpass the U.S. as the world's dominant economy, but it's not there yet. Uh, and it may take a lot of time. China wants to keep its financial markets relatively closed because the uh, the, the, the state figures correctly that if it opens up its financial markets, it loses some control over its own economy. They like controlling. You know, it's, it's not a conventional capitalism they're running over there. The state really is the prime actor in ways that uh, uh, would be strange to Americans. Uh, they can, Xi Jinping can decide, I'm going to destroy Jack Ma, the, uh, the, um, the, the creator of Alibaba and Southern, you know, cyber assets. And he did, did, um, you know, they don't, um, they don't. Uh, they don't defer to billionaires the way they do in the U.S. There, there's no, uh, you know, moneyed ruling class. Um, and so the, the the Chinese are not going to want to change that anytime soon. Uh, so if the financial markets are closed, you can't really serve as a reserve currency because people can't park large sums of money in Chinese assets. Uh, there's the same issue with uh, the euro. There's no single unified um, euro bond market the way there is. I mean, every country has its own government bond market. You can buy German bonds, you can buy French bonds, you can you know, buy Dutch bonds, but it's not like the U.S. Treasury market where you can just go in and buy vast wads of, or sell vast wads of U.S. Treasuries. Um, so yeah, the combination of U.S. economic preeminence, which is Decaying, but certainly not gone, and uh, the the size of our financial markets uh, and political and military power um, 
all those things suggest that dollar preeminence um, is not going to go away. Now, the sanctions are going to like chip away at it, I think, as, as countries try to uh, diversify. But uh, there's, like I said, there's not a whole lot of alternatives to this, uh, this dollar-centric system just yet. They may devise some. You know, the Chinese and Russians are talking about it. You know, Indians are getting involved. Um, but on the other hand, money is valuable um, based on what you can buy with it. And right now, you know, you can't buy very much with the ruble. Uh, and there's certainly no offshore market in uh, Chinese renminbi. So uh, as long as the dollar um, can buy so many things, financial assets and commodities, um, it's, uh, it's, it's going to stick around for some time. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with you. And um, just to your point, if you look at some of the analyses, even from like the UN and the IMF and some of the reports that they've put out, uh, it looks like it's it's not only a, just a gradual move away from the dollar. You're talking about uh, the dollar in terms of uh, global reserve currency, you know, holdings going from like 73% to 65% over like 14 years or something. You know what I mean? It's yeah. like, it's such, it's, it's, it's moving extremely slowly and even an acceleration in the last year. Um, what you find is that it seems like they're diversifying into Swiss francs and Australian dollars and Canadian dollars and whatever local currencies are relevant. So if the Indians and the Russians want to trade oil and gas and rubles and rubies, fine, but that doesn't fundamentally change the global calculus. No. Yeah. yeah there's, you can only put so much money in the Australian dollar. Or the Canadian dollar, or you know the Swiss franc. I mean, they're 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 just their markets are way too small to absorb the kinds of numbers that uh, reserves uh, are are, uh, are are denominated in. But also a commodity um, pricing. Um, it's very easy to get dollars. It's not very easy to get a lot of other currencies. Um, so yeah, the the, the dollars' role um, is not going to go away um, uh, overnight, or even you know in a matter of just a few years. It, 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 it's going to erode, no question about it, but it's just going to take a really long time. I think it's more a matter of political wishful thinking than it is economic analysis. Oh, I think that's correct. I mean, people want the U.S. empire to fall apart. And I completely understand that feeling. Uh, but yeah, it's just not happening. Okay, Doug, in the time we have remaining, I want to just ask you a little bit about some of the other um issues as they relate to where we are politically, because of course, all of these things are, I mean, certainly inflation is probably going to be the biggest issue uh, in the coming in the midterm elections in the United States, and certainly leading us towards the presidential election, which, as we all know, never actually stops and will start the day that the midterms are over. So the question, the question I have for you is, what does this mean for the Democrats and Biden? I mean, you're talking about presiding over what, eight, nine percent inflation rates you're talking about across the board, uh, price hikes for all of the major things that people need on their day to day lives, gas, food, uh, things like that. So, I mean, are we looking at disaster for the Democrats? It's quite possible. You know, uh, it's, there's a saying on Wall Street, never predict anything, especially the future. Uh, and I, I try to um, avoid too much prognostication, but it does look bad. Uh, people really, really hate inflation. And that's, I think, central to the, the current political moment. Like some Democrats are saying, we're having these great you know, jobs numbers. We had 300 and some odd thousand that last month, 500,000 the month before, you know, uh, we've regained like 99% of the jobs lost in that, that COVID swoon. Although I should point out that the Europeans have actually regain more and more quickly than we did. But still, um, we did have um, quite a, a rebound from that, that 
loss of 20 some odd million jobs uh, in, for, in early 2020. Um, but when people go uh, to fill up the tank or buy food, uh, they are just seeing nothing but price increases. And you know, gasoline is, if I remember correctly, three or 5% of the average household's budget, but it's so psychologically salient. You know, you fill up the tank several times, the, the prices are, you know, like on large signs, whenever you drive down the road, people are reminded of it constantly. Um, they're not necessarily reminded of you know, the slow increase or uh, the slow and slower increase in other prices uh, or the decline, you know, technology product prices. Um, they just see that. And then you know, people shop for food every day or close to it. And, uh, the, and we're seeing a lot of food and energy inflation. So it's really, um, it looks worse than it actually is uh, to some degree. Um, so yeah, they're going to be reminded of that constantly, and it may be too late to change people's perceptions. It's quite possible the inflation has peaked, maybe starting to ease a bit. You're seeing some signs of that. Um, supply chain issues are easing up somewhat, um, not completely, but they're certainly easing up somewhat. Um, but it may be um, just too late to change people's perceptions of, of inflation, and there may be some momentum to the inflation. Uh, so by November, you know, if we have 7% inflation, who knows, 6% even, people will still be um, angry. Uh, and it's going to be hard uh, to counter that with some kind of more positive message. Uh, and you know, there, there, there have been surveys of public opinion that show that people, most people prefer, would rather prefer, um, uh, would rather have higher unemployment than high inflation. And that's, you know, at odds with what a lot of people on the left think, but that's what the majority of the public seems to think. Um, so um, the, the, this concern that, uh, that um, uh, the, uh, the Fed may cause a recession is not necessarily one that's shared by everyone as long as, you know, in a recession, the unemployment rate may hit 10% at a, at a bad recession, but you know the other 90% will be happy to see prices come down, I'm sorry to say. Um, so this uh, it could be a very bad situation uh, for um, Democrats. Uh, I saw a quote in the, in the Times this morning, some, some woman who's filling up her SUV in Los Angeles and said, well, at least under Trump, gas prices were low. And you know, that, that's politics for the average American. And uh, the Democrats are going to probably suffer for that. And more to the point, Americans don't want to hear things like, well, there are many structural reasons for how this came about that, you know, for several years, policies. Have... No, it's not going to. No, no. Like and, yeah, see the Joe also, Biden I... sticker on the gas pump that says I did that. Yes. <laughs> and, you know, they, they were slow to acknowledge it. Too. You had all these Democrats last year saying, oh, it's transitory. Uh, it's no big deal. Um, I have some. Uh, left economist friends are saying, oh, we, how do we measure inflation? Is it being adequately measured? It doesn't matter that much. It erodes the value of debt. Uh, yeah, it doesn't help to have liberals and people on the left um, um, downplay um, the, the, the fact that inflation hurts most people. Does this have any bearing on some of the debates we've had on the left with regard to economics? I mean, you know, one of the popular ones about mon modern monetary theory and inflation is not something to worry about. And you could just do whatever you want all the time. And here we are in an inflationary crisis. And so I'm, one, I'm not trying to start the meme war with the MMT folks again. I'm just <laughs> trying to ask. I'm just trying to ask, like, does this force some people on the left to recalibrate their thinking about uh, macroeconomic issues? 
I think MMT is discredited among a, a broader public, but I don't think it's certainly not uh, discredited among its fans and adherents. Um, and I think a lot of people, you know, some of my comrades in DSA, um, uh, are still uh, enamored of printing money. Uh, but I think we've had a lesson uh, that uh, it can cause inflation, and more quickly than we thought was possible. Now, for a while, I subscribed to Stephanie Kelton's Substack to see how she was covering this uh, bout of inflation. And she's kind of saying, oh, we told you all along, if you print too much money, it'll be inflationary. Well, you know, they didn't really tell us that all along. They, you know, they said, keystrokes, man, we don't need to tax. We don't need to borrow. We just create money out of thin air. Well, we just did a lot of that and we've got eight and a half percent inflation. Uh, and, you know, Kelton is now saying, yeah, we, 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 we have, the economy has real resource constraints. We have to things, think about the supply side. Well, it's all true, but nothing they've done over the past decade or so as they, they came to prominence um, really pointed much attention, paid much attention to um, um, the resource constraints. They, they, that was always like kind of an afterthought. They were always about the easy money and the easy spending. Uh, it was always uh, the economics of joy, I think, as someone said of Hubert Humphrey. Um, it was, uh, yeah, yeah. The, um, it is correct that they did say that resource constraints were um, uh, a problem and could cause inflation, but it's not something they foregrounded. Um, it's not what most people took away from the modern monetary theory message. Um, and, um, you know, I think that we've, we, we talk about the supply chain, uh, the problems caused by COVID, but we've also um, experienced decades of very serious underinvestment in the real economy, uh, both private investment by corporations and public investment um, in infrastructure by governments. Uh, the public investment has barely kept ahead of um, of a depreciation, meaning we're barely replacing the public infrastructures that rots and certainly not improving it. And uh, similar uh, with private investment, it's a little above zero, a little more above zero than, than the public investment, but not that much. Uh, corporations have been focusing their investments on quick, short, quick payback, short-term investments and not really long-term stuff. Uh, and that's another reason we've had this, uh, all these supply constraints. You know, they've run this model of just-in-time inventories where you just um, don't keep any inventories. You just uh, keep production really tight and expect that uh, parts will arrive uh, in the back door as you ship products out the front door. Um, that also is really a very risky system, as we've seen. Uh, so, yeah, we need to uh, get public and private investment up to deal with that inflation. Uh, but that is a task of many, many years. And uh, looking at the fate of the Build Back Better uh, plan that Biden had, um, it doesn't seem like it's going to be happening anytime soon. So I think we're we're kind of screwed. All right. We're just about out of time, but I just want to ask you one, one other question about some of these issues, because one of the things that Prior to COVID and prior to all of the supply chain issues, and now, of course, inflation and everything else, one of the economic, um, I don't know, alarm bells that was sort of ringing was the issue of debt, both personal household debt, but especially corporate debt. And I wonder, um, what is your analysis of the levels of debt, especially corporate debt now? And is that something that's a ticking time bomb that could multiply all of these problems? Yeah, I said a little about that, but I'd be happy to say more. Um, the, the corporate, most since the financial crisis uh, of 2008, 
Uh, most sectors of the economy reduce their debt levels. Households dramatically reduce their debt levels. Um, if you look at it, uh, debt in relation to income, we're back to 1990s levels of debt. Like all that increase that happened in the late 90s, early 2000s through the housing bubble, um, completely reversed. Uh, households have been very prudent. And even during the COVID crisis, there was not much borrowing, household borrowing going on. But, uh, and, and certainly... Um, State and local governments have not done a lot of borrowing. Um, the financial sector has not done a lot of borrowing. Uh, but what has done a lot of borrowing are non-financial corporations. Uh, and they've been borrowing for mostly debased purposes. They're not borrowing to expand capacity or develop new products or any of those sorts of things that they're supposed to be doing, um, which is you know, supposedly their, their justification for their existence in the capitalist system is uh, providing real goods and services to satisfy people. Um, They've been borrowing mostly to buy up each other um, or buying back their own stock. Uh, trillions of dollars or just vast amounts of money they've spent buying back their own stock to, uh, to uh, boost its value. Uh, and it's not just you know the surplus profits that they don't feel like investing that they're using to buy, fund those buybacks. They've been borrowing a lot to fund those buybacks. Um, so yeah, uh, as the economy turns down, um, it's not like they have a lot of productive assets to show for all this borrowing. Um, it's just basically been pissed away. And uh, um, the, the, uh, the debts will still come due. They're still going to have to service those debts. So, yeah, that can be a real serious problem uh, with, with corporate debt. Um, it, and there's a lot of really bad corporate debt, too. Um, you know, not, not just blue chip corporations, but, you know, third and fourth rate companies um, that have been borrowing very heavily. And in the indulgent uh, uh, credit markets for the last uh, decade or so, they've been able to do it. Um, so, you know, there's an awful lot of junk out there. And again, we don't know quite how much or how exposed some entities are. Um, we've certainly got some information on bonds, but no, also um, companies, banks have been putting together called leveraged loans, which are basically junk bonds um, extended by banks. They package them and sell them. Uh, and uh, very much like they did with the mortgage products back in the 2000s. Um, and again, we just don't know how much there is precisely or who's holding it and what's going to happen if things start seriously unraveling. But that, it's a very risky spot um, in, in where the real economy joins a financial system, that, that, uh, that corporate debt. Yeah, it feels like with inflation and everything else, we're teetering on the brink and one more push could potentially really cause an implosion. Yeah, well, that's that this is what what higher interest rates will do, um, too. So um, we're going to find out. Uh, generally, uh, you know, people think that financial crisis leads to an economic problem. But generally, we see a slowdown in growth rates in advance of a financial crisis. Uh, and we're seeing that to some degree now. Um, the real sector is not growing as, as rapidly as it did last year. Um, and at the same time, the Fed is, is hiking interest rates and, and, and sounding like it's very determined to rein in inflation and maybe even you know, provoke a rise in unemployment uh, and uh, a, a you know, broad economic downturn. Mm, that's, that's not a good combination. And, but we also have this problem. What will the Fed do in response to this? Will they allow things to get crunchy or will they come back and bail everyone out again? Uh, and I don't know, just somehow this, this regime of perpetual bailout, which started in the early 1980s, really, um, has to come to an end. 
but the consequences of it are could be very damaging, very um, you know, throw people out of work in large numbers, uh, lead to lots of bankruptcies and failures. Um, but on the other hand, um, you know, this this regime of perpetual bailout has its own problems. It just um, uh, sows the seeds for um, even bigger problems down the road. So I don't know how they get out of this one. It's not going to be easy. And uh, um, I don't know. I wouldn't want to be the president or the chair of the Fed right now. Well, I suppose we can all hope that President DeSantis helps us. <laughs> yes, that's just what we need. Yeah, I know. I mean, that's that's another issue. I mean, we've you know, if the Democrats, as bad as they are, lose, uh, and quite likely they will, um, we have an absolutely insane Republican Party that uh, just would do insane things in power. Um, and uh, I don't think it's too much of an exaggeration to say that they're a threat to democracy, such as it is in this country, or what's left of it, or whatever we had of it. Um, is under threat so especially if they it's take over a, un, especially if they take over under conditions of economic crisis oh yeah it's just it's really ugly um and um i don't know it's not a happy moment i'm often glad that i'm not younger and this is one of those moments well the uh the old man has spoken the effet sound money marxist the risible foot soldier of the ownership class the stalinist schoolyard bully doug henwood thank you as always for coming to counterpunch for chatting with us for helping us to understand the economic uh nightmare that we're all living through behind the news is the podcast uh contributing editor at the nation go find him on twitter find him on facebook doug is great and you should follow him doug thanks as always oh thanks for having me eric good talking to you Listeners, viewers, thank you as always for supporting Counterpunch, and we will talk to you again next time.